The following program is sponsored by Grant Stern. This is the Only in Miami show, sponsored by Morningside Mortgage Corporation of Bay Harbor Islands. Tonight's show is hosted by Grant Stern. Find out more about our sponsor at www.morningsidemortgage.com. That's www.morningsidemortgage.com. This is the Only in Miami show, and I'm your host, Grant Stern. You can find me on Twitter at Grant Stern and everything about the show at www.onlyinmiami.co. iTunes, podcast, SoundCloud, and a whole lot more. Check it out at onlyinmiami.co. And we have a great show planned for you tonight. So if you're in the car and stuck in traffic, and this is Miami, so you're probably stuck in traffic, kick those shoes off, relax, and stay tuned. We're going to start with an in-studio interview with Dr. Hector Medina. He is running for mayor of North Miami. They have an election coming up pretty soon in just a couple weeks, and he is going to join us for the first half of the program live in studio to answer questions about the city of North Miami. So if you're a voter in North Miami, you got to listen to this show for sure. Then we're going to have Nathaniel Sandler. He is a Knights Art, Night Arts Challenge winner, and he's going to visit the studio today. And we're going to talk about his project and as well <clears throat> about the Night Arts Challenge, which is closing pretty soon. And you can go to nightarts.org. That's nightarts.org. Submit 150 words and you could win. And then at the end of the program, we have up and coming comedian Joe Pera. He is uh, per- participating in Oh Miami. Joe has been on the Seth Meyers show and he will be calling into the show at the end of the hour. But this is the part of the program where I get a few minutes to speak directly with you, the listening audience, about issues of importance that affect us throughout South Florida and sometimes beyond. And for the second week in a row, I'd like to discuss Frank Artiles, our now former state senator from Kendall. If you were listening to the program last week, you heard me announce that I did plan to sue Mr. Artiles for censorship. Well... He beat me to the punch. (laughs) Ironically, Frank Artiles, after dropping a bunch of N-bombs and insulting the Republican leadership to Democrats, uh, apparently resigned not because of his total indiscretions and the fact that he was going to get expelled anyway, um, but something even worse. Uh, The Miami Herald investigated Mr. Artiles, the censor, And they found that the Republican ex-state senator was hiring some special consultants for his special fundraising opportunities. Now, I don't know about you people, but if somebody's consulting bona fides are simply that they've taken pictures in Playboy and worked at Hooters, well, it might raise a red flag. And sure enough, that's the real reason why Mr. Artiles decided to resign But I don't think the scandal is actually going to go away because people are going to have questions about why Mr. Artiles reimbursed himself $51,000 for vacations with the political money that he was taking in to hire his consulting model employees uh, to go to far-flung places like Key West for a Frank Artiles fishing tournament and uh, Churchill Downs for the Kentucky Derby. 
All in all, I would say that Frank Artiles is a poster child for Republican excess in Tallahassee. And if he's doing it, he cannot be the only one. Of course, he was the worst one up there, and of course, he's gone now. But it doesn't mean we should not expose all of his wrongdoing so people can understand that the pay-for-play mentality in Tallahassee is really harming our interests as the general public. Why is Mr. Artiles so important? Why are we talking about him again this week? He headed a very powerful committee that oversaw Florida Power and Light. That's the, the, the electricity monopoly that covers all of South Florida and certainly everybody listening to this broadcast. Well, Mr. Artiles took money from FPL's parent company. He had them pay for a trip to Disneyland where they took him to Epcot and they took him drinking around the world. But that wasn't enough. So Mr. Artiles went with his corporate sponsor to a NASCAR event. He was wearing their jacket when he dropped the checkered flag on the race. Again, it's a terrible example, but Frank Artiles cannot be the only Republican who is doing this. He it was very, very much in the mainstream of the Republican Party of Florida. He it was ex-Senator Artiles was very beloved by the Republican Party. They loved his outspoken homophobia, his racism, and his job-killing bill, he wanted to introduce, actually did introduce, he wanted to make into law a bill that would have been like North Carolina's HB2, the pro-discrimination against LGBTQ people, and it would have been a bathroom cop bill. Ironically, that's why he censored me, for calling him a bathroom cop. Well, after he created this massive scandal last week, Frank Artiles had one very simple explanation. He said, it's my First Amendment right to be nasty, offensive, and racist. But ironically, he was censoring me and denying my First Amendment right at the same time. And look what happened. Six Semper Tyrannis, that applies to censors. Any politician that you see censoring people, you should know there's something wrong going on here. Period. End of story. And yes, I'm speaking about Mayor Philip Levine of Miami Beach. Anyway, we will be right back. This is the Only in Miami show. on point and a walk is mean the crowd parts like the sea they can look but a touch they can only dream he loves a challenge so he licks his lips he's inspired by her arrogance his first words make her body tense she can't leave cause she feels his strength now she can't help but listen but she's down to her last defense and she says why you being so persistent he says i speak what i want into existence she never heard a man talk like this never seen somebody so confident driven to the point of death gets what he wants even if it means no
Welcome back. This is the Only in Miami show, and I'm your host, Grant Stern. You can find me on Twitter at Grant Stern and everything about the show at www.onlyinmiami.co. iTunes, podcast, SoundCloud, and a whole lot more. Check it out at onlyinmiami.co. And we're back live in studio with Dr. Hector Medina. Dr. Medina, thank you so much for joining me in the studio today. Good evening, Grant. Thank you so much for having me. So, Dr. Medina, tell our audience a little bit about what inspired you to run for mayor of North Miami. We moved to North Miami because uh, there was a MOCA museum, and then they were planning to, in Main Street, to make a a bunch of uh, antique shops and artist uh, studios, and my wife is an artist, and she chose the city, and we moved there. I bought her a house the day of our anniversary, seven years ago. Okay, so uh, what's your opinion of the current state of government affairs in North Miami after being a resident for seven years? North Miami is a multi-ethnic city, and um, the problem right now is that uh, the community is being divided by uh, activities that the city hall is conducting that are not unifying the community, but dividing it because they focus more in in one sector of the community than the rest and uh, we are over here in the same boat everybody has to be afloat and everybody has to survive and everybody has to aspire to improve uh, the city it cannot be you know for one segment of the population well let's let's talk about this uh what are some of the issues that caused you to run? Because I know that there's several issues that are ongoing with the city of North Miami. Um, most recently, we've heard a lot about an idea to make a Chinatown there, which seems a little bit strange because there's no natural Asian population there that anybody knows of. What's going on with all this? Why, why are they doing this? Well, it, it is my understanding that the Chinatown is, uh, in a way, I, I believe that... Uh, the city is catering to Florida International University, who has a, a Chinese a high population of Chinese students. Chinatown is uh, the city residents who live in the area where they're planning to develop an opposed Chinatown. I don't understand why the city keep pushing a development that is not welcomed by the residents or the city in general. It's, it's beyond me why they're doing this. It's not, it's not a popular project. The people who live in that area are of Bahamians or African-Americans, and they want the culture to be, you know, reflect in, in, in the planning of that area. They don't want uh, a foreign, completely alien culture, you know, to dominate where they live. They spend ridiculous amount of money on studies and trips for nothing. Doesn't that seem like, like something very odd that they have? St- how much have they spent in studies to decide if there's going to be a Chinatown or not? I believe they spend like around $50,000 just to, for the gas station's designs. And, you know, the area around uh, with all Chinese plastic things and, you know, not the real current uh, Chinese culture, but the one that uh, from the movies of the 40s and 50s. It's, it's ridiculous. That is pretty ridiculous. What else is going on? What other issues are you concerned about in North Miami that the current administration is not handling properly? Well, the the current administration, you know, the first thing uh, when I got involved with the city, 
uh, I got involved because they were allowing uh, businesses to operate illegally, you know, in the city. Okay. And one of them was affecting me. And, you know... What was that? What kind of business was it? It was an industrial uh, dry cleaners in a residential zone. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, they had that since 2009. And to the credit of the... Uh, inspectors and code enforcement and the city planning commission, you know, they tried to close the place since 2009, but the government of the city, and it's not only the current one, but three previous mayors, you know, they were uh, practically, you know, encouraging these people to stay there because they brought up more than 100 jobs, you know, and apparently money was more important than the health and the well-being of more than 300 residents. It, it was ridiculous. That operation was 24-7, 365, under a tarp. They have machines as big as a pickup truck, 20 of those. And, <laughs> wow. uh, you know, the residents, there were people sleeping 20 feet away from that from, from the, that inferno, which is what it was. You can go to YouTube and see a bunch of videos that we place. Gotcha. And is it still there? No, we okay, finally good. closed on the 31st of uh, last month, of March. So, but it so took it took us two your, years. Oh, man, that's a long time. That's a very long time. Yeah, all of us had to put uh, invest around $30,000 on noise-proof windows and proofing our houses, not counting the contamination from the machines. You know, those machines use perchloroethylene, which is known to cause cancer. You know, we were very worried. Uh, but the city chose to look the other way, you know, for them. And we had to force them, literally, you know, to close them down. It was a, it was a hard, hard and very long fight. So are there other instances of the city choosing dollars over citizens' health or the, the well-being of the neighborhoods in North Miami that you can tell us about? Because, I mean, I know that North Miami has had a very troubled city government. One of the former mayors was arrested, ironically, in a mortgage scheme that involved the radio. <laughs> the problem in the city, as I see it, you know, and I don't have all the pieces of the puzzle. Sure, nobody does, right? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> the problem is that uh, the developers come and they present a plan and a very beautiful, you know, architectural pictures, and they say this and they say that. And in my experience, you know, two buildings that are going up in my neighborhood, you know, they told us, you know that the building was going to be pretty with glasses, and and now what they're building is is a warehouse. You know, oh, and man. I have I have a, a concrete wall at the end of my street, a five five story concrete wall. That wasn't what they sold us, and this happened all over the city. You know, they come with a project, and everything looks pretty. You know, they're going to bring development, and we're going to have businesses and, and studios for the artists, and then next thing you know. They're building a convalescent house, you know, apartment of 700 square foot without, without even kitchens, you know. And Wow. You know, yeah, it's, it, it's every project that they put in Miami, you know, we, we have to watch it like, like hawks because they say one thing, next thing you know, they're building another. So I want to move on to an important topic that a lot of people have heard about in North Miami. And don't worry, we can take this up after the break, too. What, if elected, would you do to reform the North Miami Police Department, which has been singularly awful and really caught a lot of flack nationally 
for shooting and, and hitting an African-American man lying down on his back with his hands up when they knew he was unarmed. Yeah, that, that was a terrible incident. It happened a block away from my house. I go, wow. through, I go through that street six, seven times a day where it happened. And um, the, the, the police in North Miami needs to be completely retrained in, in, in you know, community policing and how to deal not only with, with mental patients with uh, some uh, mental issues, but also with the multi-ethnicity of the city. The city of North Miami is extremely complex. And, you know, I feel for the police in the sense that they're not properly trained to handle, you know, a multi-ethnic community and to handle, you know, these particular instances where they have seconds to make split decisions. This is, this is real bad that we had to put a young man, you know, behind a scope to make a decision that where they don't have all the all the data available or they're lied to, or you know, it's just the training is it's improper. I mean, it's it's, it's just the, the community police in the city I used to live in Tulsa, Oklahoma. They established a community police uh, component to it, and things improve. You need to know the people you're dealing with. You need to get. Not the regular police training, but perhaps include social workers, include uh, behavioral specialists, people who will bring another perspective to the policing. It's okay for policemen to want to, rec it's not okay, it's, it should be the right, you know, to want to go back to their families, and that's fine. But they choose a profession that is dangerous. You it know, is very dangerous. It's very yeah. dangerous, you know, and, and they choose that position, you know, and they need to be completely retrained in how to deal with special situations because everything is not in the book. You know, you have to have common sense. You have to have uh, a scenarios, you know, where they train you on how to deal with particulars. You know, the police really, the, the chief of police is my friend. I, I love him to death. He's a good man. But uh, that, that was handled poorly especially for the cover-up. They, they start covering up, and they lie to the chief, you know, and they lie to everybody, and the consequences, you know, who knows who are going to be. Well, we're still finding out the consequences. Um, what do you think about what the city of Miami Beach wanted to do? I'm not sure if they were able to do it, but the city of Miami Beach wanted to require a college degree, a bachelor's degree for all police officers. Do you think that would be a good prescription that, for what's that, ailing North, the city of North Miami that Beach, will be uh, police department? Yes, that would be great. Uh, having educated police officers, uh, the ones who don't have a bachelor's degree, they can be encouraged or help to get it, you know, but of course, education is an A plus for everybody, but particularly to public servants. I will encourage everybody in the city to just take classes to keep sharp. If, if you do not deal with the constant changes in society, you know, for me, the way the kids work, walk, or kids can be intimidated because I'm 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 60 years old. But you know, we need to we need to understand where they're coming from, and we need to address their needs. There is a lot of uh, young people walking through the streets of North Miami, young ladies, young men, you know, and all of them, you know, deserve the respect of the police and everybody else. Everybody, you are a public servant. As such, your job is to serve, not to impose. And on that note, we'll be right back. This is the Only in Miami show. 
Welcome back. This is the Only in Miami show, and I'm your host, Grant Stern. You can find me on Twitter at Grant Stern and everything about the show at www.onlyinmiami.co, iTunes, Podcast, SoundCloud, and a whole lot more. Check it out at onlyinmiami.co. And we're back with Dr. Hector Medina. He is running for mayor of North Miami. Dr. Medina, thank you so much for joining us in the studio today. So let's talk about some more of the issues in North Miami. Um, We were talking during the break about the development that is being planned for the stretch of North Miami Boulevard, which is 123rd Street, in between Biscayne Boulevard and Bay Harbor Islands, which is a very heavily trafficked corridor. Um, Everybody that's going to Surfside, to Bay Harbor, to Bell Harbor, um, like my office is over there in, in in Bay Harbor Islands. So I know that's a very congested corridor. Uh, what is being planned and what are your concerns about it? Well, uh, right now the city, so they're planning to build another building, a big building, which will require a change of zoning for that area uh, between uh, the LA Fitness, which is on 123rd and US 1, and a bank. They have a five acre lot there where they're, gonna, they're planning you know, to put a, a big building. Well, I can assure you, if the city staff come to me, telling me that they conducted a study uh, regarding the traffic, uh, uh, the traffic uh, influence or the negative parts of the traffic that that building will cause, and they come to me, we, well, we didn't conduct a study because we used the study that the builder provided us, and we check his methodology. I say, really? You check the methodology of a study on how the traffic is going to be affected on 123rd, and you think you can come to me with that? I mean, it's ridiculous. Let let me just tell you, based upon my experience in zoning fights in South Florida, which is fairly extensive, every traffic engineer in South Florida can tell you one thing. Miami has no traffic. (laughs) Exactly. I think our listeners might disagree. I mean... If you're out there, raise your hand if you're stuck in traffic right now. But I'm not kidding. All of these projects do have engineering studies, and they invariably say if the developer pays for it, they invariably say there's not going to be any more traffic. Yeah, well, that's my route to the beach. I, I am so sorry, but 123rd is like a golden pot that we have in the city. That had to shine, and that has to be developed according to the needs of that community and having them really involved on what's going to happen, where they live, where they go and shop, and where they go to restaurants and take their kids out. Increasing the traffic on 123rd is not, unless I see studies that tell me otherwise, it's not my tea, my, my, my cup of tea. Yeah, I mean, it sounds to me like you might need a lot of traffic engineering if you're going to keep the traffic from being really bad over there, because that's a choke point to begin with. It is. Like, there's no alternative route. You have to take Biscayne to get to that part of 123rd. That's right. Or you have to take the other part of 123rd. Like, there's just those two streets, and there's no alternative. Yeah, it, it, is, it is already overcrowded there. You see, I go through there every day. It's, it is, uh, if you go there between 10 and 1, you're on your own. You'll spend half an hour and 45 minutes in, in less than a quarter of a mile. It's, it is ridiculous that uh, they, they, you know, they, they're planning a condo that is going to be built right there. And uh, the neighborhoods affected by this were not happy, you know, but things are the way they are. Something, sometimes we can change things, sometimes we don't. I do believe that uh, the citizens of North Miami wants to, apply, to, you know, press the brakes a little bit and smell the ocean and, you know, develop properly with uh, environmental concerns and community concerns 
really involved in the decisions that we're going to make. Well, let's talk about the other side of North Miami Boulevard, because really North Miami Boulevard is what most people associate with the city. That's, uh, you know, North Miami Boulevard and West Dixie Highway have probably 80% of the businesses, and Biscayne, of course. Um, those three routes probably have 80% of the businesses. But North Miami Boulevard goes from I-95 out to Bay Harbor Islands, as we've been discussing. It's north, uh, east 123rd or 125th Street. It moves a little bit. Um, but what's going on on the west side with the MOCA, the Museum of Contemporary Art? That's like the gem of North Miami. And I know that there's been a lot of turbulence with the uh, trustee, the original trustees departing, and the city is being more involved now. What is going on with MOCA? And how could a new administration make a difference there? MOCA is the reason uh, we moved to, to North Miami. My wife was, she's an artist, and of course, I mean, having a museum, you know, where she can, uh, you know, express her, her art and go and, and share, you know, with her friends. And there we have a, a lot of artists in North Miami, you know, that are architects and People that are moving are usually involved in the art business, you know, in some way or another. Sure. MOCA is what making the city grow right now. You know, MOCA, everybody everybody who's moving to our area is is uh, love the MOCA and the antique shops and the cafes and all that is around MOCA. You know, there was going to be a building for artists there, and uh, that was the promise we got. And, and now things are like taking a backstage. We don't even have a cura curator right now in the museum. Is is uh, really? Uh, I think they have put the museum in, in the back burner, and uh, we need to bring that back because that's our crown jewel. You know, Moca is like the soul of the city, and we need to we need to you know encourage uh, the activities that a museum brings to a city, and include the, include everybody. Well, does, does the city need to spin off management to like a, a, a respectable nonprofit or do something structural to keep city politics from interfering in museum operations? That would be great. It, 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 that, of or maybe course, a, trustee, for that. a board of trustees or something. I mean, right now, isn't it pretty much d directly managed by the city? I believe so. Like who's in charge right now? Is anybody in charge? <laughs> I... After the last person who was there, he was a, a young man, you know, who well, lost his job because there was uh, some kind of a, a sexual problem, you know, that he was harassing oh, yeah, yeah. people. Yeah, well, after that, he was uh, asked, uh, he left, you know, under pressure, I believe. And uh, the museum is, is like, like a ship in the middle of a storm, just, you know, with the engines off. Who knows what's going on there? We need we need uh, the, uh, a board of trustees or some kind of in the, the, the a museum had to be independent from the city politics, you know, because right. so, some politicians like economic development or the politicians like this or like that or their needs of the community were there, you know, because Moca is on on or just on one council person, you know, that council person cannot carry the whole weight of uh, developing MOCA. MOCA is like our heart. And they yeah, need it's to a very important institution. In, in the city of North Miami, it's probably the most prominent institution in the whole city that's the best known outside of, you know, north central Miami-Dade County. That's right. And the antique shops of North Miami are famous, not only in Florida, but all over the world. I always, you know, I, I, I walk around that, that area all the time, and I meet people from Germany, from Brazil, you know, from 
friends and, and, and people come all over to our city. Our city has to be more appealing to everybody. You know, right now the exit, the exits to 125th, which is the one that will bring you to Moca. I mean that you, it's it's very very disappointed that that area is not being. At least you can paint the bridge, you know, put some flowers here and there. Welcome to North Miami. It's not, it's not, you know, it's not appealing when you get off of the highway, you know, to get into North, North Miami. That will be my first priority, especially between West Dixie and uh, what we know as uh, Villa Maria. Okay. We spend a ton of money, you know, on putting bricks in the sidewalks, and we don't clean them. It's dirty. All of that is real dirty. Well, it sounds like if you get elected, you will have your work cut out for you. Yes, sir. And I want to wish you luck. Uh, Dr. Medina, where can our audience find out more about your campaign online? Is there a phone number, a website? Give me, uh, you know, whatever, whatever you'd like for your audience to reach out uh, and pick up the conversation through the Internet after tonight's program. Well, you can go to Medina for North Miami at gmail.com or in Facebook. You can email that, right? Uh-huh, yes. And, uh, or uh, in Facebook at Medina for Mayor 2017. And if you visit my page, you'll get the calendar. Okay, so you go on Facebook to Medina for Mayor 2017. Uh, is there a website? No. No, not just a Facebook page. Facebook page and sure. uh, e- email address. Yeah. All righty. And if you want to get in touch with Dr. Medina, his email is Medina for North Miami at gmail.com. Again, thank you so much for coming on the program tonight. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much. And we'll be right back. This is the Only in Miami show. Mama always said we were royalty. She even said it's staring in the face of poverty. Is that insanity or vanity? I think it's nothing but the power of the mind. Believe she put it in me. Because I live on my dreams. I get my fantasies wings. One day I'm going to be king. I'm going to make that woman so proud of the sun. I know you heard about change. It's going to come. One question. Will you be there? Will you be there? I'll be there with my hands held high in the air. Like a champion. Because I'm the man to win. Oh, 
welcome back. This is the Only in Miami show, and I'm your host, Grant Stern. You can find me on Twitter at Grant Stern and everything about the show at www.onlyinmiami.co, iTunes, Podcast, SoundCloud, and a whole lot more. Check it out at onlyinmiami.co. And we are back with Nathaniel Sandler. He's the founder of Bootleggers Library. Nathaniel, thank book, you so book, much book, for joining book, us. Book, book, okay. book. <laughs> Bootleggers, yeah, it says bootlegging, of course. We would love to bootleg some things, but we're not quite there yet. You have my permission. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> so uh, tell our audience a little bit about Bootleggers. Well, Bootleggers, bootleggers, bootleggers is a, a community mobile library we set up once a month. Uh, and give away free books. After uh, you take one free book, you can buy a book for $2, but we uh, typically try to make it a lot of fun. So we've done it, uh, for instance, in the planetarium before the planetarium closed with a laser light show. When there was a planetarium. Yeah, when there was. Uh, We did it in the swamp. Uh, We've done it with dog adoptions. Um, The last event we did was with the Old Miami Poetry Festival, and it was on a mini golf course. So the golf course was covered in books. People would... uh, compete for prizes and everybody got a book obviously and uh if you're interested in that the oh miami festival is going on right now that's right uh good plug i actually got the t-shirt on i know that's not good for radio but i do have. oh it yeah everybody can see it um <laughs> now they can it just says oh miami so <laughs> um, um yeah actually i think people can go to oh miami.org that's right, right? that's and right you can find out about that we're gonna have a guest from from oh miami on later he's a comedian but uh is that joe para yes joe para is hilarious yeah, he's pretty funny. I've actually got a clip lined up, and uh, he's he's very self-deprecating because he is a Buffalo Bills fan. Yeah, I mean, and it must be hard, right? <laughs> to do that, you have to be, uh, you have to have a sense of humor. Yeah, a really sense of humor, big one. Um, so, so you told me that you won the Night Arts Challenge not once but twice. That's right, twice this How'd year. How'd you do it? What's the secret? <laughs> um, you know, I was thinking about this on the drive over, and the secret is. It's twofold. It's you got to work really hard. I mean, people, people tend to throw a new idea out um, that they just had, and and the reality is that you should be working hard on your idea before you ask the Knight Foundation for money. Um, they're more than welcome or willing to give you money if you've got a good idea you've been working hard on. But if it's something you just came up with in the shower. Uh, it might be a little bit difficult for them to just throw it at you, you know? Although, let's not discourage anybody who just came up with a really good idea in the shower from applying. Yeah, of course, of course. Um, but I, I agree with you. It takes a little bit of yeah, you need develop, to, thought development. You need to, have been, development. You need to show them that, that you've done something. Um, and, and I do think that uh, there are a lot of projects out there that do come out of the shower that are, that are amazing. Uh, and, and like you said, don't discourage that. Um, but the, the work hard aspect of it is really important. I mean, bookleggers particularly, you know, we do a lot of heavy lifting quite literally, um, which is why, which is why we don't keep volunteers that often, but, oh, there you go. (laughs) but you know, the other project is, uh, that I was funded for this year is called Crip Cracking. It's kind of the other half of my professional identity where we go into museums and do, uh, some research about the objects that they don't actually have on display. Okay. So, so, so you check out like the back catalog the back, of these the, libraries. The, the archives, the collections rooms, uh, and we work with the people that are in those rooms every day and try to do some of the fun stuff that they're not actually able to do, which is like, hey, look at this thing that's sitting here. This is amazing, but it's not on display. Let's take some pictures, do the research, put it online, uh, and, and try to do it in a fun way. We do, I do a lot of tours that are goofy, like at Vizcaya, for instance. We do the Secret Door Tour. Um, you know, we've, we've done that kind of thing that 
they 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 can let me do because it's a little bit less serious, sort of, you know, and 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 really gets people excited. I mean, the Secret so, Door Tour sold out. Do like, you get worried that you're going to open one of these crates and everybody's <laughs> going to melt, kind of like Indiana Jones, or is it just I, like I, you, you know? It's funny. I just watched Suicide Squad last <laughs> night, and that's kind of the premise of that movie. Um, uh, is, uh, that, I, wait, that movie has a plot? Uh, you no, know, well, I'm the, sorry, you confused me there for a second. I, I actually went to bed thinking about what the plot was, so. <laughs> <laughs> and it has to do with museums, basically. But no, okay, sir. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I, I, we have, I mean, we've found some stuff. So one of the most successful stories that I ever wrote was about two maps and a series of letters that we found in the Science Museum that was purportedly uh, the, the location of a set of pyramids in the Everglades. Really? Yeah, it's it's okay. it, it was a cover story for the New Times about three years ago. It sounds familiar. So yeah. this, this is a real... Uh Real Indiana Jones right. story, it's, huh? Well, it's it's. Did you uh, find the pyramids? We did not find the pyramids. Uh, though, if anybody would like to fund the expedition, I'm more than willing to keep going. <laughs> oh wait, uh, so let's let's give out the website. Yeah. Well, so I, I, I actually, you know, I don't. The website is in development. We're we're about a month or two away from it going. You know, we didn't we we didn't get money until just now. So it's okay. It's, it's, but Nathaniel, they can contact you at through book one hundred percent through bookleggers. My bookleggers Twitter feed is library.com. Right? Yeah, there's okay. a million ways. I'm available on the internet. Here, let me give it out. Bookleggerslibrary.com or info at bookleggerslibrary.com. Beautiful. If you want to fund the expedition to find <laughs> the pyramids in the Everglades and you're listening tonight, hit, please hit me up. send an email to Nathaniel <laughs> at info at bookleggerslibrary.com. And I think it sounds like a great project. It's fun. It can be a lot of fun. We've, uh, you know, the Science Museum has found a bunch of, of funny things that that collection is... Uh, is well cared for, but it's not necessarily well, um, well researched. You know, we found the chocolate bowl of a of a Mayan king. We found uh, underwater watercolors that were painted in the 1920s from like an early rebreather. There's a, just a lot of really amazing things that people don't know are there, and that they would gladly hear about if uh, if it's out there. So I'm going to actually the the plan with the money that Knight has given me for that is to hire some video people, hire some other writers to kind of go out on their own and do the same sort of thing and get into these museums and go in the back. What's in the back? Who knows what's in the back? I like that. A chocolate bowl from the Mayan king. Yeah. What's <laughs> yeah. The story? So what's the story behind the chocolate bowl? Well, so there's a, there's a big pre-Columbian collection at the Science Museum, and they, um, they at the time... The, uh, it's a, a little bit longer story. The, the, Go si ahead. the science Go ahead. museum, the science museum is a collection of the city. It's a collection of the community. A and the one way that I've described it, which they might not necessarily love is that for a long time, the community would drop a box of weird stuff off and be like, we don't need this. And then that box would get put in their collections room. Some of it was available <laughs> to be put on display. And a lot of it was pre-Columbian. They had some really wealthy donors in the sixties or so seventies, the Institute of Mind Studies is still actually run out of the museum, but they they didn't know what it was, and they brought in a University of Miami professional to do an assessment. And as they're moving to the new building, they're assessing all of these things, getting a you know a very specialized expert to look at everything to right make sure. to decide what's what's treasure and yeah, what is you know, junk. Well, some of it, and so <laughs> some of it, what they found out was that some of the pre-Columbian stuff was actually tourist objects from you know vintage tourist objects, and. 
this other one, she was like, this is a, it's like a major piece. It was like owned by a king and he drank. And so chocolate was drank ritualistically by the Mayans. It was considered, you know, only the super wealthy and they would do it in very, very special context. And this was the bowl that the guy drank out of. And somehow it ended up in Miami and, Figures. Yeah. <laughs> Somehow it ended up here. They didn't really, you know, they didn't know that that's, they didn't know, they knew that they had it, but they didn't know how special it, it was. It must have been a pre-Columbian chocolate laundering ring. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm sure there was drugs and, and prostitution involved, for Somehow. sure. Yeah. <laughs> there was some sort of racket, and the yeah. bull wound up here, and you know. And so, you know, the, 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 the project was born out of three projects that I had been doing for a few years. Vizcaya, um, the Science Museum, right, and the University of Miami Special Collections. Uh, so they're all different. Vizcaya is obviously a very much self-contained. It's it's the period of interpretation is small enough. Science Museum is crazy. There's stuff from many many centuries, uh, and then University of Miami is all rare books. Um, for instance, the last project there, we went through the archive of a man named William Lyman Phillips, who you may be interested to know is responsible for designing nearly every green space in South Florida. He's the designer of Matheson Hammock, Fruit and Spice, Grenolds. Wow. Uh, Overseas Highway, Venetian, Rickenbacker, Royal Palm in the Everglades. Literally, the way that we go outside and experience Miami, this man designed. How, uh, uh, how did he get the gig? Uh, he got the well. He was was he, he an engineer for the county? He was a landscape. Or? He well, he was a landscape architect, but a lot of it was done through the CCC, which was a New Deal. Okay, um, sure. Del, the FDR started after the the depression. The the Conservation Corps. Yeah, exactly. So, and he was the he was the head, the chief architect, the chief landscape architect of oh, the CCC. Okay, so sure. he was the guy that oversaw every single, not every single, but the major green spaces that we think of. Right. No, no, no. Madison Hammock, Fairchild, the, the, these places that we all go to and say, oh, we're outside. He, he did it. I think a lot of people don't realize how much of South Florida is Depression era right. landscape architecture, architecture, um, because it's, you know, there was a massive building boom here leading up to the, the crash. Right. So like the Art Deco era and then. The Depression era very much was linked to what was happening in South Florida because a lot of people got wiped out Correct. by the big hurricane and then by the the Wall Street crash. But also also there was a big war machine here as well, and that that helped with the building. Uh, You know, a lot of the the airmen from World War II lived down here and then came back afterwards. Uh, But William Lyman Phillips is not a name that anybody knows. Right. Uh, not. You know, when he studied with Olmsted, who, you know, the Olmsted brothers who are come from the Central Park uh, family that built, you know, the one of the best parks in the country. Um, so I, it's one of these things where we like to try and go into the to the archive and tell a story that nobody really nobody really knows or nobody really thinks about. Well, it sounds like you guys have a biography that you're about to write that nobody has really been thinking <laughs> Don't about. Don't ask me huh? about my book. Don't ask me about my book. <laughs> okay, okay. We won't ask you about the book. I'll tell you what. Stick everyone, around. Everyone. Stick around because Joe is hopefully going to call in in a few minutes here. Okay. And uh, we'll all chat at the same time, but tell our audience where they can find out more. One more time about your numerous projects. Pick a project. Okay, well, bookleggerslibrary.com uh, is... For the people, uh, by the people, we take away, take in your books and give them back away. Crypt cracking will be coming in the next month or two. Uh, we get to crack the whip on the designer. That's the deal, <laughs> right? And uh, also, if you have a great idea, oh, night arts challenge, please. It's happening right now. the The submissions close what at the end of the week? Uh, I believe so. Yeah, I think it's the twenty eighth. Yeah, the twenty eighth is the submission deadline. 
Uh, we're going to publish the podcast with Adam Ganusha. He runs the Night Arts Challenge. Love he was Adam. on the program a few weeks ago. Check it out at nightarts.org. That's nightarts.org. K-N-I-G-H-T arts.org. Nathaniel, thank you for joining us in the studio. Stick around for the next segment. How's I that would sound? love that. And we'll be right back. This is the Only in Miami show. Back. This is the Only in Miami show, and I'm your host, Grant Stern. You can find me on Twitter at Grant Stern and everything about the show at www.onlyinmiami.co, iTunes, podcast, SoundCloud, and a whole lot more. Check it out at onlyinmiami.co. And we are back live and waiting to get Joe Perra on the phone, but I figure this would be a great time to play a clip from Esquire.com. They named him one of the 10 comedians to watch in 2017. Week seven of the NFL season, but it's already clear that the Buffalo Bills are the best team in the NFL. <laughs> I know, I understand if you disagree on the grounds that your Patriots have beaten us the last 24 of 26 meetings, <laughs> and that we haven't made the playoffs since 1999. But this year, when our season really falls apart around week nine, people in Buffalo will be reminded that there's life outside of football. And that maybe, just maybe, it's time to take the kids on a drive to the lake again. do this every year on purpose they'll win a a few early on well we're still waiting for Joe but uh, let's keep chatting with (laughs) with Nathaniel although I gotta say he's pretty funny yeah yeah he's pretty funny Uh, he's he's, he's got these skits where his his voice is so slow that you can't help but laugh in between and then what he says is so funny 
that you can't help but you can't stop. Yeah, laughing. it's just very deadpan, <laughs> yeah. very deadpan. And you know, for a Buffalo Bills fan, that's that's the necessity. Listen, we don't have a lot to celebrate down here. Although this turning Are you around, a Buffalo Bills I'm, fan no, I'm, too? I'm, a, I'm a Dolphins fan through and okay. through. My dad's been taking me to games since I was very small, which <laughs> means I, I I've stared into the abyss. You know? <laughs> yes, yes. As have I. As have I. Yeah, it looks like the, the Dolphins are finally turning around. Uh, but one thing I think most people don't realize is that the owner of the Buffalo Bills actually lived on Miami Beach all these years. Really? Yes. Ralph Wilson? or the Ralph Wilson, the legendary owner and no. founder of the Buffalo Bills, lived on Miami Beach this whole time. I did not know that. That's and he told fact. the story at his Hall of Fame introduction. I'll never forget it. He said, I tried to start a franchise in Miami. And the city fathers refused to lease him the Orange Bowl because there had been some other pro teams that hadn't made it. Right. So he had to regroup. And the next choice on the list was Buffalo. And he chose Buffalo. I had no idea. Yeah. That's, uh, you should, you Hence should rub that into Joe Parra's complex. face when he, gets on, when he gets on. I'm waiting for him, man. I'm <laughs> waiting for him. He's behind here. He's behind. So, <laughs> so let's talk about some of what uh, the, the crypt... Crypt cracking. Crypt, yeah. crap, crypt, uh, crypt cracking. Crypt, yeah, crypt bootlegging, <laughs> crypt cracking. Yeah, too many brands. Stuff. Yes, yes. <laughs> uh, so let's talk about some of the crypt cracking because that's really interesting stuff. What, what are some of the other great finds? Um, I think I mentioned this earlier, but uh, one of the cooler things we found was uh, the in the 1920s, the down in, in South Florida as well as in the islands, there was a group of people called the Williamson brothers who um, built this apparatus that was basically attached to a barge and you could go into it and go underwater um, and you could be down there for a little bit of time. It so was it's kind of like a primitive scuba diving. Yeah, exactly. It was a rebreather. So it was called the Williamson submarine tube. Okay. Um, and it's actually, they used it to film the 1918 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, the like early, early 20,000 uh, Leagues Under okay, the Sea. Okay, okay. So this is like some early movie magic. Yeah, but underwater gear. movie magic. Yeah, yeah. Like, but also, so in, in the science museum, they have this series of watercolors that a man named Charles Olson actually painted from that tube underwater. Um, so he went underwater and then painted what he saw. Correct. Watercolors. From, and, and in 1920, I think they're from like 21 to 23. That's like really early on to be underwater painting um, in like a pretty dangerous thing that right. you see pictures of. It looks like, you know, kind of a steam, like, I don't know, just like a little death strange. trap. Yeah, it looks yes. like it. I wouldn't have gotten into it, at least now. <laughs> Maybe then. Who knows? Um, but so there's this huge series of photographs that, that, that are all, or if I'm sorry, watercolors that are all underwater. And one of the things that, that the Science Museum has also is the Roy Minor Collection, which is all underwater photography. They have 19th century underwater photography. So in Miami, which we like to talk about how we're potentially sinking, uh, they have all of this really early underwater ephemera. Uh, that is that's that's very important, especially to scientists that like to look at historical things like that. Um, oh yeah, it's surprising, but you know, even a, a coloring can tell you what was there and what it looked like then. That's yeah. right. That's right. Yeah. Um, yeah, and, and these are the kinds of things that you know we've had eureka moments. Like, oh my god, this was painted underwater. Nobody knows that this is here. You know, I mean. So it went up on display after that. So it, it, it ends up being a program that then people can see if, if it's deemed important enough, you know? Sure. Um, but uh, museums are funny places, and I, like, I get to do the things that a lot of people there don't have the time to do. 
they don't spend a lot of nights at the museum. Yeah. <laughs> I gotcha. I gotcha. Nothing's come alive on me yet. Uh, nothing's come alive on me yet. <laughs> uh, right, but it it, it is kind of cool because there's like you said, there's stacks. People just kind of drop stuff off, and yeah, you know, at the time maybe nobody thought that this was important. There's stories all the time about people finding things that are of great import to the course of human civilization that's been filed away that somebody filed away years and years and years ago and now we're, we're you know they found it again and it, it comes back uh so we want to do that here nobody's really doing that here um and the museums are open to it um they they, they love someone coming in and using their collection you know that one of the things that i put in the grant language is that uh, across the country 95 percent of museum holdings are not on display so that's that's why we use the word crypt. If it goes into a room that nobody sees, it really it, 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 it there's a mausoleum aspect to it. Like why why isn't this being utilized? It's a public collection, and, um, and I think that that's important for people that are applying to the Night Arts Challenge to keep in mind that it's not just about describing what your project is, but why is this important? Right. Why you know is there something that people have overlooked? And I think that that's right. Like just saying, hey, you know, ninety five percent of museum collections are not on display. Right. That's that's an important fact to highlight the project. Right. And it needs to be it, it needs to it needs to give to the community in some way. Right. Right. And so the way that that crypt cracking gives to the community is that we're taking this stuff out and putting it out there for people. But also we're doing tours. We're going to put video so people will be able to see this stuff that they literally you can't go see unless you've, you know, made a million different appointments and dealt with a million different museum wonks, you know? <laughs> like, right. I mean, just in general, it's like, imagine what it would take for you to just go from doing nothing to like, Hey, let me search through the archives. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, ta- it takes a bit of, a bit of doing, um, but also you would have to know that it's there, right? right. You have to ask for a specific thing and we're finding out what those specific things are. Instead of saying, Hey, we want to find this chocolate bowl that the Mayan King brought. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, well, let us just dig through this stuff and use the internet. Well, yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> there, but and there's so much weirdness, you know, the 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 pyramids in the Everglades story came out of uh, the J. Manson Valentine collection, which is all occult. And that kind of stuff is just hidden. Like the mysteries, we can find them. We're looking to find them and we want we want to show them to you. And one more time, Nathan, where can our audience find out more on the Internet after the program? Uh, well, you can look for Bookleggers, bookleggerslibrary.com. You can look for me, Twitter, N.T. Sandler. Follow me on Facebook, any of it. Just shoot me an email. I'm available. All righty. Well, Nathaniel, thank you so much for joining us on the show tonight. And I'd also like to thank all of our guests. I'd like to thank uh, Dr. Medina. And uh, we will be back next Monday night. This is the Only in Miami show. (laughs) 